Uh, welcome to Dreams of the Past podcast, uh, our second episode. And uh, thank you guys for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the last episode. Today, we're going to be talking about the Winchesters as heroes and various different types of heroes. Um, and so for this episode, we were looking at the following episodes of Supernatural, which Marit will explain. So we looked at uh, season one, episode two, Wendigo. Uh, season two, episode nine, Croatoan. Season three, episode six, Red Sky at Morning. Season three, episode 12, Justin Bellow. And season four, episode 19, Jump the Shark. And so the reason we looked at these is because um, we want to start to explore the Winchesters through the lens of different interpretations of the hero. Uh, Supernatural draws a lot on both Westerns as a source of inspiration um, for its heroes, as well as... um, sort of the noir genre of detectives. And we want to sort of use some of the thoughts about these genres to explore what makes the Winchesters heroes and also the definitions of a anti-hero and a uh, Byronic hero to sort of determine where they fit along the hero-anti-hero spectrum. Right. And uh, an important theme that will probably emerge throughout this episode is going to be that of independence. Uh, The idea of independence versus society is pretty important to all considerations of American heroic archetypes. It's um, a pretty important theme within our society. So it's going to be coming up in our discussion more than once. (laughs) I want to quickly just determine whether we care about authorial intent here. Oh, of course, of course, yes, sorry, that was in the notes. Yes. (laughs) So Uh, for people who are perhaps unfamiliar with this concept, um, there is a large debate among, in literary analysis circles, um, and when examining a body of work, uh, about whether or not we care about what the author intended for the work versus what the work demonstrates independently of any individual um, like intentional intention of the author. Uh, So for example, an author might write something where they intend the work to be extremely serious and dramatic, but it ends up almost a parody of itself, (laughs) which is a potential example of where the actual interpretation of the work is different than how the author intended it. Right. Um, and so on one side of that spectrum, you have a form of literary analysis that isn't really done anymore, but was very common for a long time, where in a lot of ways you're basically looking at a work of literature as a lens into the author rather than looking at the literature itself on its own merit. Way on the other end of that spectrum is Roland Barthes' uh, concept of death of the author, which is basically the idea that once the work is complete, authorial intent 
doesn't matter and in some ways should cease to exist in terms of your analysis. Um, and it's much more important to consider audience reaction to something and your own personal reaction to something. Yeah. Another thing that our, um, our listeners may be familiar with is JK Rowling uh, revealing on Twitter that uh, Dumbledore is gay, um, despite the fact that that's never implied in the text whatsoever. And she's just saying that after the fact. Uh, and in a lot of ways, that's cool because, hey, representation, but also it's brings up the question of if you can't actually, if that's not written into the text, does that actually have any relevance on the character? Right. So authorial intent uh, can be pretty difficult to examine in the context of a TV show because there are a lot of different people who are working on a TV show. And unlike a movie where at least those people are consistent from start to finish, uh, there tends to be a lot of turnover within a TV show. There will be different writers working on different episodes, different actors involved in different episodes, uh, directors, even showrunners can change. And so authorial intent uh, is pretty mercurial in terms of TV shows, although seasons one through five of Supernatural have the benefit of having a clear singular showrunner in the form of Eric Kripke. And Kripke clearly has a vision for the first five seasons of Supernatural. And TV shows are notorious for being um, a very uh, responsive uh, art format, where if you write a novel, you generally will write it, and then unless it's part of a series, you won't necessarily revisit the plot points because of like limitations on word count or something like that. Whereas with a TV show, you're continuously in a debate with the, uh, with the network and you're always negotiating what you can do and what availability there is. For example, season three of Supernatural is a, as a half season because of the writer's strike. It's uniquely a format that uh, moves through time in a way that movies or uh, novels or anything else doesn't really have to react to the actual timeline on which uh, it's being created. TV shows have to. And so in a lot of ways, um, the authorial intent is muddled by the events of, of just reality that the TV show has to deal with, as well as networking pressures and different writers, as Mart says. And so even if you've got somebody like Eric Eric Kripke, who has clearly got a vision for the show and that sort of thing, he still had to adapt his vision to what actually made sense for the chemistry between the actors or what the uh, what the network wanted to see or what the demographics of the viewership of the show were. And so there's a lot of different factors and TV shows tend to end up being a much more collaborative medium than a lot of other mediums. Which brings us to the question, um, for the purposes of our discussion of heroism, do we really care about this question of authorial intent? Um, yeah, and how do we determine authorial intent? Um, like, obviously, Kripke and uh, the other writers of the show have given multiple interviews, and um, most of them are on Twitter or other forms of social media, and so we can, to a certain extent, determine what the intention was, but uh, we'll never actually be there 
when they were creating the show. So it's hard to exactly determine what they were trying to do in that moment. Yeah. Um, and I guess, so for me, the way I often default to handi- handling authorial intent is uh, looking at it as almost the most well-respected critic of a particular work, right? Like, this is a person who has a really good angle on this interpretation and whose take on this I'm going to respect a lot, but just because they said it doesn't mean I'm always going to agree. Um, Right. Like, even if the ethereal intent is really clear, like they state, oh, I wanted the character to be this, I wanted him or her to represent this, then you still have the effect of the of the work itself. Like you can have a show writer who writes somebody who is clearly homophobic or a show that's clearly sexist or something like that. And they can be like, Oh, I didn't intend for it to be that way. And that's like, I'm sure maybe they didn't, but you still have to judge the impact of what the work is actually showing. Yeah. So I think the conclusion we've come to is death uh, of the author. Death to the author. I don't know. I've always been in the death of the author camp. Like, because for me, I just feel like it's way too complicated to just try and sort out what the author meant. Yeah. I'm lazy, so. (laughs) I think in terms of this particular question, um, heroism, like, that's such a fluid notion. Mm. Um, And it can change so much from person to person and culture to culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and time period to time period, uh, that if you just look at heroism through the lens of what the author intended, uh, you're missing 99.9% of what's going on. Right, because the, the author can't necessarily encompass all of the cultural influences that have led them to create the work. Uh, Me and my boyfriend, my boyfriend's in uh, video game development, and we talk a lot about how people who create video games will create something that they didn't necessarily intend to create, or, and there'll be side effects of the way they created the narrative or even the um, game mechanics to work that they could have never anticipated, and it results in a product that in some ways, the people who use it or uh, interact with it know better than the authors themselves because the authors had this vision, but in reality, when you release your vision into the world, it doesn't always uh, stay intact. And so a lot of times uh, we'll talk about um, video games that were clearly intended to do one thing and completely uh, do a, an entirely different thing. I've always, I've always considered Death of the Author to be a really important thing to establish when you're talking about literary analysis because uh, it's really easy to get bogged down in the author's intention rather than actually examining the work for what it is and the context it's in. Right, right. And I do think um, the author's intention can be interesting. And sometimes it's interesting by the ways in which the work does not support it, right? Like mm. J.K. Rowling, like what's interesting about her saying that is that there's nothing in the books to support it. Right. And so she, it seems like she's just throwing it in there to sort of retroactively be like, oh, I have representation and when she clearly doesn't. Right. And it's yeah. also, it's hard because J.K. Rowling created something that was like so much larger than herself 
Um, and it must be really difficult as somebody who created something. And I don't think that there's much that an individual person can influence about their work. I think that the reason that Harry Potter got so popular is it was just the right thing for the right time. And if she had written it 20 years earlier, or 20 years later, it might not have been as resonant with, uh, with our generation. And so she doesn't actually have that much control over how popular it is. And she created this thing and it's, it sort of, it takes on a life of its own. Not to, not to turn this into a Harry Potter podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, I think that sort of speaks to a point about how death of the author is sort of the default form of analysis for a lot of people involved in fandom, mm -hmm. right? Like people in fandom tend to one extreme or the other. You're either 100% looking at authorial intent and audience reactions don't matter, or you're all the way on the other end. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of middle ground. Yeah. But I think for the purposes of discuss this discussion, we can uh, safely assume that we are assuming death of the author. Oh, sorry, Kripke. Um, <laughs> taking that into account, we're going to just focus on the actual um, body of literature, as it were, that we're focusing on and uh, the context on which the, the themes that it draws on from different genres and the context and the effect that it had on the audience and um, what, the, like, what the episodes are actually saying about the heroes. Um, and leading into that, uh, Mart, do you want to give us a rundown of hero, anti-hero, Byronic hero, all the heroes? <laughs> yeah, sure thing. So there are a lot of different ways to define a hero. It's a slightly more complicated notion than you might initially think. Um, but in general, uh, a hero tends to stand for um, some sort of societal ideals or set of societal ideals. Uh, and so that can range from, you know, the very classic square-jawed Superman-type hero uh, that we think of um, to something more like uh, a hero in a Jane Austen novel um, where the societal ideals are being projected onto a young woman um, to something more along the lines of, you know, even other superheroes like Spider-Man are going to provide a contrast because they're standing for different ideals. Um, and what is a hero to one person can be an anti-hero to someone else. Um, and so an anti-hero is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it's basically um, someone who is in the position of hero but doesn't quite fit into all of those nice shiny ideals that we have. Um, and so that can vary in some different ways. Um, so, so can a anti-hero, like, do, can they be morally ambiguous or does that make them a villain? Like, does, is the difference between a villain and an anti-hero that one has a moral code and one doesn't or? No. Um, so an anti-hero can be morally ambiguous. Um, there's sort of a sliding scale of, okay anti-heroes starting with um starting with someone who is experiencing a lot of self-doubt um and has some significant weaknesses that they have to overcome <laughs> sort of like a hiccup character from how to train your dragon something like that right okay right exactly um all the way down to uh 
like a, a nominal hero or a sociopathic hero, 90s anti-hero. A lot of the jargon I'm using here comes from TV tropes because they... The greatest <laughs> website of my life. <laughs> like, holy crap. <laughs> Want to lose like four hours of your life? Go to TV tropes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All of these uh, kinds of anti-heroes can either be morally ambiguous in that they are uh, doing the right thing but for the wrong reason or with the wrong methods or they're using usually still the wrong methods <laughs> uh, <laughs> but maybe they have the right reason but they're doing the wrong thing or they're doing uh, the wrong thing for the right reasons yeah okay so it's yeah. sort of that whole spectrum of graying morality as you get away from the sort of knight in shining armor. Right, exactly. Okay. Um, really complicating the idea of what a hero is and what it, who can be a hero. So mm -hmm. In the middle, you find mm -hmm. a Byronic hero. I would say that Byronic heroes fall more on the anti-hero side of the spectrum. Okay. Um, but they're often thought of as unironic we presented as heroes. Okay, so they, they are heroes, it's just that they have a lot of flaws. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, so I have some notes here about Byronic heroes. Oh, sweet. Perfect. Megan. Um, so Byronic heroes tend to be characterized, uh, they're almost exclusively male, first of all. Mm -hmm. um, they're usually patterned after Lord Byron or his iconic characters. Um, and they're often characterized by being mysterious, handsome, guilt-ridden, tortured. Um, <laughs> Sounding familiar. <laughs> um, they often have a bitter outlook on the world following mm -hmm. some sort of traumatic event, uh, mm -hmm. usually related to love in some way. Mm. Um, so the Byronic hero is often motivated by loss and failure in a romantic endeavor. Mm -hmm. um, so, I have some quotes here uh, about Byronic heroes. Mm -hmm. um, so, the Byronic hero is primarily a lover. Love is, for him, the one ruling passion in his life, on which mm -hmm. he bases every other action. The Byronic lover remains faithful to his one and only love until his death. Mm -hmm. uh, so, familiar notes there, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, they're also characterized by some as a villain lover, um, and they're pretty heavily associated with the romance genre in terms of modern works of literature. Um, but for a long time, they were all over the place. So think about, you know, Wuthering Heights, um, those sort of gothic classics, and mm -hmm. you'll see a lot of Byronic heroes. Okay. They're often heavily associated with a dark, powerful, arrogant, supernatural, or religious figure. Mm -hmm. um, so the two sort of most iconic are going to be vampires and Lucifer. Um, oh, okay. Interesting. Yes. Um, and so one of the most important scholars on Byronic heroes is a guy named Thorslev. Uh, I'm probably going to pronounce the name of every scholar I quote incorrectly. So oh, yeah, same here. Sorry, guys. We try. We really do. 
Um, so Thorslev argues that an air of a fallen angel surrounds this persona, who is mm-hmm. on a pilgrimage in search of relief for his past sins, hmm. for self-restoration, although he knows that he will never find what he is seeking and that he will wander in eternal remorse. Fascinating. <laughs> and that sort of ties into, we also looked at um, some articles, which we'll link in the description uh, for the episode, but um, some articles that explore the Western genre as well as the uh, noir detective genre. And one of the things that uh, the noir genre it, that really stood out to me was the uh, impossibility of the task that the detective undertakes where he's trying to cleanse society of evils. But one of the important aspects of that is that he, it's like the task is literally impossible that they will purge evil only to realize like at the end of the day that there's no way to actually truly get rid of evil in this in the civilization in which they reside whereas contrasted with the western uh genre where the stranger rolls into town purges the evil creates this ideal civilization and then leaves uh which i feel like both uh supernatural draws on both tropes extremely heavily i have one quote yes um from the article that we read about detectives that i want to include it's a pretty long one That's cool. But I think it's so relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, the author of this article is Frederick Svoboda. I'm I'm sorry, Frederick. I can pronounce your first name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The article's titled The Stubnosed Mystique Observations on the American Detective Hero. Um, And our pal Frederick writes, The American frontier has long been conquered. Yet the private eye finds that all its classes of hazards face him within the structure of American civilization. The hard-boiled detective derives its framework of moral purpose directly from the Western novel. But where the characters of the Western story look forward to and work for the establishment of an ordered, safe society of civilized people, the detective hero must acknowledge that the cynicism of a disappointed romantic, that established civilization is no more than a veneer, that an unwinnable frontier still divides the civilized and savage elements of modern life. Yet the detective hero is ever dedicated to erasing that eradicable frontier, to winning a finally unwinnable battle against the savagery within a civilized world. He is a new gunfighter who risks himself as the messiah of order, but who, even if martyred, can never hope to establish permanent order. Wow. Just. I know. I love that quote. I, uh, I also <laughs> had made note of that quote because I feel like it does a perfect job of contrasting the two genres that Supernatural draws on so heavily, but also explaining the like Winchester experience so well. Like it sounds almost like it was written about Supernatural. It does. It does. It's so, like it spoke to me so deeply about the ideas we were considering about the Winchesters in Mm -hmm. the text. Um, I just had to... Yeah. Yeah, and so um, it's taking that as as the perfect jumping off point to start discussing the episodes. Um, All of the episodes we looked at fulfill this sort of Western ideal of the Winchesters rolling into town, 
saving the innocent townsfolk and then rolling out of town. Although not always do they actually succeed in saving everyone. In Croatoan, they they don't. And Croatoan is really interesting because it's such an inversion of the like Western, the Western script where they like at the end of the episode, I remember finishing the episode and I had remembered the episode as being really, really good and it still was, but there's this feeling at the end of Croatoan, like, wait, what just happened? Like, how did they get to this point where like they didn't actually rescue anyone? It's, it leaves this like question hanging in a really weird way. And it's just very confusing. And they even talk about that. Dean describes it as the one that got away. And because it's an, a TV show that has an overarching plot Croatoan makes sense as part of the overarching plot, but as an individual episode, it's very unsatisfying. It's like, oh, wait, I don't, like, everybody just just disappeared. Like, they didn't save anyone. They just ended up in this weird place where, like, something happened to them rather than them happening to something else, which is very rare for the Winchesters. And then uh, in Juice and Bellow, they don't actually end up saving everyone. They think they do. And then Lilith comes in at the end of the episode and kills everyone. And so, and again, that's for the overall plot rather than the individual episode plot. And so it creates this really interesting thing where even though they're using this Western narrative of coming in, saving everyone, they definitely don't always succeed. And one of the like quintessential things about the Winchesters is that actually they rarely succeed. <laughs> Yeah, um, and actually, that was something, like, a theme that seemed to emerge from the episodes we chose to watch, for me, seemed to be this idea of struggle being worthwhile, even if it's ultimately hopeless. Mm-hmm. There are some episodes that question that a little bit, like Red Sky at Morning, um, through the character of Bella, questions whether I had forgotten how much I liked Bella as a character she's actually really awesome she's amazing I this is like a total tangent (laughs) but I love watching Bella and Dean work together as a seamless crime sleuth machine I know like their dynamic is so good and that's really something that like the early seasons of Supernatural do with one-off characters that I feel like is lost later in the show because they're still figuring out all of the characters in the first five seasons. And so, especially before Castiel shows up, like Dean gets paired with some really interesting one-off characters and Bella is only in the third season and she she's only in like four or five episodes at most, but she's just such an interesting foil for the Winchesters. And she's a character that we, I like in my experience with the show, we never really see another character like Bella where she is not a supernatural creature or a hunter, but she knows about the supernatural world and moves within it as flawlessly as the Winchesters do for the most part. She still needs to come to them for help often. And there's this bit in Red Sky where they're like, she's, they're debating the like various points of perspective that they have on the supernatural. And she's like, look, this is a job for me, for you guys. It's an obsession. And I feel like my version is healthier, which is hilarious. Um, So yeah, Yeah. she's just a really great character who does a really good job being a foil for the Winchesters and is something we just don't see ever before or ever again. And it's, it's kind of sad that she was such a great character and then she dies at the end of the third season. 
I know, I know. Bella is probably my favorite character on the whole show. Like, Whoa, she, really? Yeah. <laughs> I love Bella. She is pretty awesome. And she's so confident. Like, yeah, she ends up having to go to the Winchesters for help a lot of the time. But still, like, she's the one who steals the cult from them. She continuously gets one over on them. And it's one of the few times that the Winchesters are portrayed as as less effective as another character. Yeah, and it's not like, um, I feel like sometimes we'll see a character get won over on the Winchesters, but ultimately the Winchesters get them back and prove they were right all along, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Um, but in the case of Bella, like, she does occasionally have to go to them for help, but she never says, oh, you know what, you were right. She says, God damn it, you forced me into this. Yes, exactly. And ultimately, she's portrayed as a sympathetic character. Like, when she dies, we get a bit of uh, the last episode that she's in, which is the last episode of the third season. We get a bit of her, like, backstory and, like, why she killed her parents and all of that. And, like, she goes from being this very selfish... Uh, money-grabbing character that's like the opposite of the Winchesters and is a great villain for the Winchesters to this sympathetic character who like I was really sad to see go. It's also really interesting that she's British (laughs) Um, because other than Crowley like they don't really have a lot of uh, non-American people in Supernatural and it's it's interesting that she's got like this sort of poshness that really stands in contrast with the Winchesters and sort of again, serves as a foil for their rugged Americanness. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I love Bella so much. I want to quick, while we're on the topic still, though, Yeah, uh, I find her implication that payment makes her investigation more legitimate really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Because that's sort of a truism in mm-hmm. some ways when you think about U.S. culture, right? Like the difference between a cop and a vigilante is a paycheck. And also institutional uh, legitimacy. Right, right. But on the other hand, the idea of an American hero questioning institutional legitimacy and only being able to operate uh, in the name of justice outside of an institution is hardly a new concept. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think Bella really confronts them with this contrast uh, in American heroic ideals and says, hey, this is what heroes are supposed to do. And the Winchesters say, no, this is what heroes are supposed to do. Right, because she's got the capitalism aspect of American culture down, just not the like institutional legitimacy. When they got Henriksen on side, they killed him immediately. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that the show continuously seeks to isolate the Winchesters. And they do this a lot in many different episodes. But in the episodes we looked at, every single one deals with people who either learn about the supernatural or um, are initiated into the supernatural, like uh, other than Croatoan. But uh, when Sam was talking to Adam in Jump the Shark about becoming a hunter and that sort of thing, he, like, explicitly lays out this code for hunter uh, lifestyle in a way that like we don't see in any other part of the show. And we're, like, told it through the actions of the heroes and the way they live their lives and that sort of thing. But Jump the Shark is the only one where they actually explicitly talk about how – and Sam – 
tells Adam, look, it's a lifestyle. You have to leave your family and friends behind and that sort of thing. And then when Dean confronts Sam about Sam telling Adam about this, Dean's like, this is exactly what John, their father, told you, and that made you leave to go to Stanford. And then they each accuse uh, the other of being jealous of Adam because Adam has clearly been given the life that was denied Sam and Dean. And so it's just, it's really interesting the like that having them like in the most blatant terms discuss the like the the coda of their life and the codes by which they live and how they feel like they in order to do the job they explicitly are isolated from civilization yeah there's this great quote from sam he says all this it's not real the things out there in the shadows they are real which is just a fascinating insight into his mindset and yet in this episode we clearly see that both sam and dean but arguably especially sam are in pretty rough shape Um, emotionally yeah and that's one of the things about uh since i watched all of these episodes together rather than going like we skipped from season one all the way to season four and took selected episodes and so it's really interesting to see the changes in dean and sam when you don't have the like continuous line of the arc of the season to sort of explain where they are mentally or emotionally. And so going from Wendigo where Sam is clearly in a bad way because Jess has just died to then season two where Dean is in a bad way because uh, their father has just died to then season four where Sam is now in a bad way because of the like plot of the show. And it's like, it's interesting how much their mental and emotional state really just depends on whatever episode that you're looking at. And it doesn't have a lot of consistency because they basically just move to be whatever is the most emotionally relevant like for the episode and the most emotionally dramatic. Yeah, there's a lot of change throughout the series. And yeah, like we sort of brought up last time, neither of them ever really finds a permanent resolution, um, which sort of ties back into this idea of American heroic archetypes in terms of the Western and the detective genre, where permanent resolution in a lot of ways often eludes both of those characters as well. Yeah, I think another thing that really stood out to me about the emotional struggle that Sam in particular was having in Jump the Shark was the discussion of John Winchester. You know, John has been built up in Dean's mind and Mm -hmm. to some extent Sam's mind as sort Mm -hmm. of the hero. And this really asks us to question that. Like one of the ghouls, when they're discussing what happened in the past and why they're doing what they're doing today, they say, our father was a monster. Why? Because of what he ate? He never hurt anyone. He was no monster, but the thing that killed him was a monster named John Winchester. And it's this really clear, like, he who fights monsters moment in the narrative mm-hmm. um, where John Winchester is shown as being someone who did some really morally questionable things um, because he went out and just killed anything supernatural that he encountered. Yeah. Even in the case of like a ghoul that wasn't actually hurting anyone. Right. Cause the ghouls feed on dead flesh. So like they're not actually killing anyone. So there's, that really begs the question of like, 
why did John feel the need to kill this person? Um, and it definitely questions the sort of othering that the show continuously does of monsters and uh, of the things that Sam and Dean hunt. And it's one of the things in the show that they bring up on an episode by episode basis, but never actually resolve uh, within the larger context of the show. And I think that it's really interesting to see the contrast between what the hunters become and what the monsters they hunt are like. And it's one of those things that like is always continuously shifting because it really depends on what the monster of the week is. Like sometimes you've got like the ghouls where they are clearly a morally ambiguous monster characters. And sometimes you've got the Wendigo, which the Wendigo is like much more clearly portrayed as a villain and there's a lot less moral ambiguity. But even if you stop and think about it, like the Wendigo is born because a person was trying to survive and survived by consuming other people. And even that is pretty morally ambiguous because it's it's sort of self-defense argument almost of why did this person become like this? Well, they didn't really have any other choice. And the Winchesters sort of fall into that category as well, where they became what they were like because they didn't have any other choice. They're, they were raised in the way that they were raised. And it, they sort of talk about this when they're discussing Adam, where he wasn't raised to be a hunter, but now uh, Sam and Dean are confronted with the prospect of turning him into a hunter. And Dean's like, it's too late for us. He literally says, it's too late for us to have a normal life or to to be free and innocent of the burden of knowledge of, of being a hunter. But for Adam, it isn't. Yeah. I think that's really resonant with the themes that Supernatural takes from the Western genre in particular. Briefly in our notes for our last episode, this idea of heroes occupying a liminal space as much as monsters do. (laughs) And I think that's really relevant here. So one of the classics of the Western genre is this movie Shane. And I think that movie really illustrates this heroic framework of a hero as someone on the fringes of society in a really interesting way. A lot of the definition of being heroic and being a part of society is rejecting violence, but for American action heroes, violence is part and parcel of who they are and what they do, and that's the role they play in the story as an agent of action, activity, (laughs) of motion, um, and that motion is often violent motion. Um, Yeah, and it stands in direct contrast with the people that they're trying to protect, um, which are in Westerns is often the townsfolk or um, some sort of established representation of civilization that is immobile and nonviolent. And they stand in direct opposition of that in that they are mobile and violent and and in a lot of ways uncivilized, but still are the protector of everything that they are not. And in a lot of ways are much, the, the heroes of the Western genre are much more similar to the villains than they are to the people they're trying to protect. Exactly. The act of killing a monster or a villain or another person, especially by an individual rather than by the community as a group, is itself a transgressive act. Um, And it's usually performed by someone who's on the boundaries of society in some way. Uh, Oh, sorry. 
Oh yeah, the article we read about um, the detective genre literally calls uh, the detective a martyr for the cause of purging civilization. Like they are the person that sacrifices their own innocence and their own role in society in order to allow other people to partake in society. Right, right. By the very act of creating or protecting good society, the Western hero makes himself uh, obsolete and an outcast, um, and the detective who is living within the society that the Western hero created um, is also occupying the fringes of that society because they're attempting to resolve the action of the Western hero with the stillness of society. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if you haven't seen the movie, Shane, that, that's basically the plot. That's the movie. We just summarized <laughs> it for you. <laughs> yeah, Westerns, especially earlier Westerns, are, are pretty simple <laughs> as far as plots go. Yeah. I mean, that's not necessarily a flaw. No, no, definitely not. I feel like Wendigo is the episode that really fits this Western genre so well. Uh, it is cut and paste exactly what the western is they literally show up in town and they go into the wilderness and they protect the pretty lady and they manage to uh, rescue the the victim and then they get a and dean gets a kiss from Haley, the pretty lady uh having rescued her brother and then they ride off into the sunset and it's very much like just cut and paste a western yeah and it deals really heavily with this question of um, whether the morally upright thing to do is to take care of the long-term problem that's in front of you uh, or to deal with the immediate issues regardless of the consequences. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's also, sorry. Oh, yeah, because Sam and Dean have that conversation where Sam wants to just save the people without dealing with the Wendigo, and Dean wants to actually stop the Wendigo from hunting people in the future, and he gives the iconic, like, dogma of the Winchester line, saving people, hunting things, in response to Sam's desire to just move on and not necessarily, like, not to, to give innocence to the monster and he, like Sam hasn't gone so far down the villain track that he doesn't save people, but to the point where it's just, they have, he strongly feels that they just have to deal with their own problems. Whereas Dean is actually wanting to intervene with other people's problems. Right. And I would say in some ways it's almost presenting us routes towards being a hero because in a way Sam is focused on an issue that is both more personal and more of a big picture. He wants to get personal revenge, uh, but he also wants to deal with this big bad, right? Mm -hmm. Dean is like really focused on this problem that's sort of halfway in between. And in some ways sort of views dealing with that problem as a stepping stone towards the larger issue. Right, like this idea that the path to finding his father and to finding the demon that his father is hunting is through following his father's instructions, regardless of whether that makes much sense in the moment. Yeah, and it it definitely, it does seem to 
to run into a bit of a contradiction there because you definitely have what Sam is saying makes more sense. Like if they actually want to deal with the yellow eyed demon and find Jess and Mary's killer, then go like then not getting bogged down by the side quests as it were, uh, (laughs) would make more sense. But because of Dean's own moral code, I think he just finds the idea of not dealing with the side quests uh, a little bit um, just it's not acceptable to his moral code because then it's leaving innocence to deal with the problem themselves because he knows that if he doesn't hunt the Wendigo then the Wendigo will start claiming other innocent people uh, once the period of time is set up again. Yeah and I guess for me even from a practical standpoint pretty sympathetic to Dean's perspective here. Like, they've been hunting this thing for two decades. Right. I don't think they're going to find it tomorrow. Exactly. And also, John, as you point out, John is considered the ultimate hero in the Winchester canon. And so there's a little bit of arrogance in Sam thinking that he's going to be able to solve um, the problem that John has been working with in the lat for the last two decades tomorrow right so there's definitely dean's point stems from the concept that dean and sam in some ways are flawed heroes when compared with their father yeah and i think there's also this idea of the side quests helping to keep them sharp you know sam only just got back into this business yeah they kind of struggle a little bit with the wendigo like it's not easy no, but I mean, also, this is the second episode ever of the show. And so I think that it's it's funny to, like, then contrast season four Dean and Sam with season one Dean and Sam. But they do become more competent through doing more hunting things and they learn more and they learn about demons and uh, all sorts of monsters that previously they considered to be fictional or outside of their league and now they're so much more impressive they've definitely leveled up but at the same time it's the show has a natural escalation from seasons one through five where you start off with like shapeshifters and that sort of thing and at the end they're dealing with lucifer so like there's a natural escalation to the first five seasons that makes sense so i think that we're gonna end it there for this episode right now and then hopefully you guys will join us for the second part of this episode where we continue our discussion of the influence of the western and detective genres on supernatural and we discuss further in depth the types of heroism that both dean and sam exhibit and thank you so much for listening dreams of the past podcast is written researched and produced by ray and mish you can reach them on Twitter at dreamspastpod, Tumblr at dreamsofthepastpodcast.tumblr.com, and email at dreamsofthepastpodcast at gmail.com. Dreams of the Past Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Please rate and review us. Thanks to Benjamin Geyer and Lynn Music for our theme song, Lonesome Ranger.